book of the Bible, Genesis 6, verse 5, and we're reading all the way through to verse 22, end of chapter 6. The Lord saw how great man's wickedness on the earth had become, and that every inclination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil all the time. The Lord was grieved that he had made man on the earth, and his heart was filled with pain. So the Lord said, I will wipe mankind whom I have created from the face of the earth, men and animals and creatures that move along the ground and the birds of the air, for I am grieved that I have made them. But Noah found favour in the eyes of the Lord. This is the account of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless among the people of his time, and he walked with God. Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight and was full of violence. God saw how corrupt the earth had become, for all the people on earth had corrupted their ways. So God said to Noah, I'm going to put an end to all people, for the earth is filled with violence because of them. I am surely going to destroy both them and the earth. So make yourself an ark of cypress wood, make rooms in it and coat it with pitch inside and out. This is how you are to build it. The ark is to be 450 feet long, 75 feet wide and 45 feet high. Make a roof for it and finish the ark to within 18 inches of the top. Put a door in the side of the ark and make lower, middle and upper decks. I'm going to bring floodwaters on the earth to destroy all life under the heavens. Every creature that has the breath of life in it, everything on earth will perish. But I will establish my covenant with you, and you will enter the ark, you and your sons and your wife and your sons' wives with you. You are to bring into the ark two of all living creatures, male and female, to keep them alive with you. Two of every kind of bird, of every kind of animal, and of every kind of creature that moves along the ground will come to you to be kept alive. You are to take every kind of food that is to be eaten and store it away as food for you and for them. Noah did everything just as God commanded him. So, story of the flood, Genesis chapter 6. Familiar, I imagine, for many of us in this room. Very familiar words. Maybe, in fact, the most well-known of all Old Testament narratives But, I wonder how well we actually know it. How well do we really understand the truths that God wants to communicate to us from Genesis 6? How deeply have these truths taken hold in our lives this morning? I want to start by asking you a question. The question is this. If you were to direct a film on the basis of the events as we read them, in Genesis chapter 6 and onwards, I wonder what sort of film it would be. What would your film be like if you were to direct a film on the basis of the account as we read it in the Bible? Genesis chapter 6 and 7. What sort of film would it be? Because for many, I think, if they were to do that, it'd be something like a new Ice Age. Disney flick, probably. Noah the bearded, chubby character. He's the hero of the story. 
followed by his faithful entourage of animals. Probably be an action-adventure with a few twists of comedy thrown in. Something, no doubt, very similar to Ice Age. But you know what? If we were to be faithful to the words as we read them here, it wouldn't be a PG certificate that you want to take your children to. It'd be an 18 certificate. Because in this passage, we read not only of the horror of sin, of the utter rebellion of society, of mankind, the way that they have twisted and corrupted all the good things God has given us. We read of the horror of sin, but not only that, we read of the horror of judgment. We read of the way that God will act in righteousness against this broken world. The artist um, Gustav Dorr, his engraving is going to come up on the screen behind. I wonder what your billboard would have looked like for your film. Probably nothing like this. But here was the engraving by Gustav Dorr. I don't know whether you can make it out, but as the floodwaters rise, the last little bit of land disappears. And as some of the bodies float past in the rising floodwaters, so the last presence of humanity on this planet is clinging to the highest piece of ground. That's the picture that Gustav Dorr used to describe what's going on here in Genesis chapter 6. Maybe very different to many people's perceptions when we talk about the flood and Noah and the animals and the ark and the rainbow. They're all in there. They're all in there. But it's maybe half a story until we reflect on this side of the story as well. For many, actually, the story of the flood is probably the most tragic and terrifying account of God's judgment in the whole of Scripture. And so it's a pretty sombre start this morning, in one sense. But before we do get too despondent, I want to mention at this stage that there is a wonderful beam of light that cuts straight through this dark passage. Because alongside the truths of sin and of judgment that we must hear and we must understand, so we see finally woven into this passage, a God of grace, a God of favour, a God of love, a God of rescue, a God of life, and a God of renewal, of making all things new. And we will get there. We will get there. We'll home in on that more predominantly next week, but we'll touch on it at the end. But before we get there, we must look at what comes first. And so... Our focus for this morning will be on those two things that I've mentioned already. It will be on the horror of sin and it will be on the horror of God's judgment against this sinful, broken world. Have a look down with me, if you would, at verse 5 in your Bibles where we started our reading. Let me read verse 5 and 11 and 12 to you again with a bit of emphasis. The Lord saw how great man's wickedness on the earth had become. And that every inclination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil all the time. Verse 11, now the earth was corrupt in God's sight. Verse 12, God saw how corrupt the earth had become. God saw, in God's sight, God saw. You see, the God who brought all things into being in Genesis chapter 1 and 2, the sovereign, almighty creator of all things, He looks down on this world that he has made. He doesn't just create the world in Genesis 1 and 2, then turn away and let the people of this world get on with it. He watches over. He observes. He sees absolutely everything that goes on in this world. Not one thing is hidden. 
Not one thing, not one thought, not one word, not one action. All things are exposed before God Almighty. wonder how that makes you feel this morning. Because it makes me feel slightly uncomfortable. Because I know the state of my own heart. I know the things that I reckon I can hide from people and from others. From Hannah, even my wife. They're not hidden from God. Because God sees absolutely everything in his world. But I guess what's even more disturbing is what God sees, isn't it? Look down again, verse 5, verse 11, and verse 12. The Lord saw what? How great man's wickedness on the earth had become. And that every inclination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil all the time. What does he see in verse 11? He sees corruption and violence. What does he see in verse 12? He sees corruption and violence. He sees a world that has gone astray. A world that has rejected its creator. What a devastating snapshot of humanity. And what a fall from the position we're in, in Genesis 1 and 2. Do you remember back to the account of creation? At the end of each day, God steps back after his wonderful creative work, and God saw what? It was good. It was good. It was good. It was good. And so he steps back at the end of day six, and he's made the whole lot. He's created humanity, human beings as the centerpiece of his world, and he steps back and oversees everything that he's made, and it is what? Very good. It's very good. Now, just four chapters later, Genesis chapter 6, God looks down, the same God, the same loving Creator, looks down on the same world, but He sees something ever so different. He sees a world that has gone back. He sees a world that has utterly rejected His loving rule in Genesis chapter 3. He witnesses the first murder. In Genesis chapter 4, where Cain kills his own flesh and blood, his brother Abel. And then we see death reign through Genesis chapter 5. And you see that little refrain, and he died, and he died, and he died, because we see and are confronted with the devastating consequences of sin in this world in Genesis chapter 5. And so we come to Genesis chapter 6, and it comes to a climax. Because God looks down, and the world is broken beyond belief, and God says enough is enough. I am going to step in and intervene and do something about this. In the words of Melvin Tinker, who's a minister up in Hull, he was commenting on this passage, and he said of the world in Genesis 6, Genesis 6 is a world of death, a dark, dank underworld, more like a sewer than a garden. The garden of blessing, of peace, of joy, of abundance, of order, the world that God laid out to be has been replaced by a world of corruption, a world of wickedness, a world of evil, a world of violence. But you see, before we look back on this world in Genesis 6 and before we shake our collective fingers at it and wag our collective heads and think, how could you have gone so badly wrong? You had it all on a plate. How could you have gone so wrong? We have to understand, my friends, that the world today is no different. The world today is no better than it was in Genesis chapter 6. The last hundred years of history tell me so. The world is no less corrupt today than it was then. 
The world is no less violent. The world is no less wicked. The world is no less evil. We've not somehow evolved to a greater level and plane of morality and we've sort of progressed to something better than we were then. The world is still like this. Flick forward to 2 Timothy chapter 3, if you would, with me in your Bibles. I'm not going to make many cross-references, but here's one. 2 Timothy chapter 3. As Paul writes to Timothy who is a youngish leader looking after a church in Ephesus, so he wants to ready Timothy for the work of a gospel leader. And so he reminds him of what this world is like. And I think you'll find it's not very different from Genesis chapter 6. 2 Timothy 3, but mark this, says Paul, there will be terrible times in the last days. And the last days, the Bible is very clear, have come. With the death, the resurrection, and the ascension of the Lord Jesus, we are in the last days. And Paul says, this is what the last days will be marked by. Look at verse 2. People will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful and holy without love, unforgiving, slanderous without self-control, brutal, not lovers of good, treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. That's our world. It won't take you long to look at the descriptions down there and see all of that in our world. And indeed all of that in the lives around us and even within us. Because you see, it would be very easy for us this morning to try and isolate ourselves and maybe say, yeah, you know what, the world is pretty broken today. I see those things in the world. I turn on my TV and I see the brokenness of society around me. I can see it all. But we've got to understand that this is us as well. Because if you flip back to Genesis chapter 6 and verse 12, look what God says there. God saw how corrupt the earth had become, for all the people on earth had corrupted their ways. No were included... We cannot remove ourselves from this picture. We cannot think this is the world but not me. This is found within every single one of us. A rebellious nature that doesn't want to follow God but wants to seek self, that loves the pleasures of this world rather than God. It's within us all. It really is. And the big question that I'm left asking now is how will God react? How will the God who made all things that sees everything. Not just the outward actions of violence and corruption, but the meditations of the mind and the attitudes of the heart, even those last things that run through your mind before you drop off this evening when you go to bed. God sees it all. How will a loving, just, good God react? And you see, that brings us to our second point. Because we're not only confronted in this passage with the horror of sin, but we're confronted with the reality and the horror of God's judgment against it. Have a look down at verse 6 and verse 7, because after exposing the human heart in verse 5, every inclination of man's heart, corrupted by sin, look at verse 6, look how God feels, look what God does in verse 6. The Lord was grieved, he had made man on earth, and his heart was filled with pain. The Lord's heart was filled with pain cut to the very core of his being to see how the wonderful order of the world he had made in Genesis chapter 1 and 2 has been disrupted and distorted and twisted by sin. 
is cut to the very core of his being. And in verse 7 he says, I will wipe mankind whom I am created from the face of the earth. Men and animals and creatures that move along the ground and the birds of the air, for I am grieved that I have made them. God will act in judgment against this world. And if it hadn't sunk in, we see it again in verse 13. So God said to Noah, I am going to put an end to all people, for the earth is filled with violence because of them. I'm surely going to destroy both them and the earth. Verse 17, it's there again. I'm going to bring floodwaters on the earth to destroy all life under the heavens. Every creature that has the breath of life in it, everything on earth will perish. Judgment is total. And you see, I don't know whether you struggle with that this morning. There are people that struggle to reconcile the love and the goodness and the grace of God with a God that will act in judgment. But I can't see it. I can't understand that because the nature of God in judging is born out of his character of love. They're not opposed to each other. They're not at tension with each other. It's because God is so good. It's because God is so loving that he cannot tolerate and will not tolerate this continuing. He cannot just sweep sin under the carpet and forget about it and say, that's no problem. It's no problem. God in his very goodness and love must put to right the wrongs of this world. He will hold this world to account. I don't know whether any of you remember the story of the, the siege in the school in Beslan in Russia back in 2003-2004, 380 children and teachers lost their lives on that day. And the last bit of the story I heard on the news about a month after the incident was this, because the Russian forces stormed in without being too careful, I think, about how they went about things. And the majority of the hostage takers that had come in and led to this travesty, this tragedy, they threw their weapons down and walked out with the teachers. And the majority of the people that led to the deaths of 380 were not even brought to the court of law. And something in my heart that day went, that's not right. It's not right. It cannot be right. They must be held accountable for the wrongs they've done. We'll disagree as to what that is, but something within every human heart cries out for justice There must be justice. There must be action. There must be. And it's no surprise because as people made in the image of God, God is a God of justice. So it's not surprising even in our fallen state, there is something within the human heart that cries out for justice. It does in every single one of us. And it does in the heart of God. And that's exactly what we see happen in the flood. That it comes to a point when God says, enough is enough. I will not tolerate this anymore and he will step in and act. And you see, there's a danger for me and you again that we almost leave the flood and the truths of Genesis 6 in the past and we think, that's just then, right? Old Testament God. But what we see as we read through Scripture is God does not change. He is consistent all the way through. He is perfectly loving and kind and gentle and holy in the beginning and he's perfectly just and gracious and powerful in the beginning and it's exactly the same God we're presented with in the New Testament and it's exactly the same world that he looks down on. So what is he going to do to this world? He will have to act in the same way. 
And the New Testament teaches us about this again and again. It picks up this picture of the flood and it helps understand that this is a reality that will come again. Because the flood is just a shadow. It is just a shadow of the future reality when the Lord Jesus Christ will return to this world and put all things to right. Have a look at Romans 2 verse 5 with me. Just one verse in Romans 2 verse 5. This is what the Apostle Paul says as he looked forward to that day. Romans 2 verse 5. But because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath, anger, against yourself for the day of God's wrath, anger, when his righteous judgment will be revealed. The people of this world remain stubborn. They refuse to change. They refuse to admit they've done wrong. They're unrepentant. They won't turn back to God. That's what repent means. It means to turn round and face God. To come back before Him because the world turned away from God and the world walked this way in Genesis 3 and every single one of us has done it and God calls the people of this world and He says, come back to me. Will you come back? But the horrific news in verse 5 is that people don't. They won't come back. They're stubborn. They keep going their own way. They say, this is my life. I'll do what I want with it. God, thanks, but no thanks. My life, my world, my gifts, my abilities, my time, my money. They won't turn around and face God. And just come before Him and say, God, I'm sorry. I know I've messed up. But I know that there is forgiveness in Christ. I'm sorry that people won't repent. And you see what happens in verse 5? You see the consequence of that, of not turning around and saying sorry to God? God's wrath is being stored up for the day of His wrath when His righteous, once for all time, judgment will be revealed. Like the floodwaters behind a mighty dam as the people of this world continue in rebellion against their maker, so God's anger, if you like, is building and building and building, just as it was through Genesis 3 to Genesis 6, and the day will come when God says, enough, enough. And the sluice gates will break open, and the floodwaters of God's judgment will wash over this land, and not one person outside of Christ will stand. Not one person all will be washed away into a helpless, hopeless eternity without faith in the Lord Jesus. And Jesus himself speaks about, I'm just going to wait and make one more reference, but in Luke chapter 17, this is what Jesus says as he looks back on the days of Noah in verse 26 and 27 of Luke chapter 17. Just as it was in the days of Noah, so also will it be in the days of the Son of Man. People were eating, drinking, marrying and being given in marriage up to the day Noah entered the ark. Then the flood came and destroyed it all. Jesus says it will be the same again, just as it was in Noah's day. People carrying on with life, eating, drinking, marrying, going to work, looking after their families, playing their sport. It will be the same again when the Son of Man comes that so many people are living oblivious to this reality. And Jesus says, then the Son of Man will come. And it will be the end. 
two applications for us to finish very quickly that in one sense I don't think need to be made because, because hopefully it's pretty clear as we work through those truths there. But my first application must be to you this morning if you're not yet a Christian. It must be. Please hear me rightly. Your position is ever so precarious in life if you haven't trusted Jesus. It really is. Because the day is coming when the Lord Jesus will come back and right all wrongs in this world. And my plea to you almost this morning, without being too emotional, is will you flee to Christ? Will you trust in God's provision for you? God provided for Noah, and we'll look at this next week, he provided a way out. He provided a way to escape his judgment. He provided a way to the new, renewed world that God was putting into place. And God provides that for every single one of us in Christ. Will we flee to him? Will we take our refuge in the Lord Jesus? Will we come back before him and say, sorry Lord Jesus, but I know that your death is perfectly sufficient. On the cross, in my place. Friends, would you take it seriously? And if you are a Christian here this morning, this is my second application really, then in one sense as we sit here a fairly sombre, there should be something in your heart that sings because you understand what the Lord Jesus has done for you. He stood in your way and faced the full force of God's judgment in your place. And he hung there on a cross and died your death so that you don't need to. So that you can be safe. So that when you stand before your God at the end of time, you will march into that new resurrection world, a new creation that God has got in store for those that would trust in him and his provision. There should be something that sings in your heart this morning and just says, thank you, Lord Jesus. You are greater than anything. But the follow-up to that is, as Jess been saying this morning, we're now the lights of the world, are we not? The Olympic torch, as it gets passed around, Jesus is the light of the world. We are lights now as we reflect his goodness and glory. Will we now, as the people of God, stand up and be counted? Will we take this message and do it ever so gently, ever so sensitively, ever so lovingly? Will we sound the alarm? Because many people in this world are eating, drinking, being merry, marrying, going through the motions of life, and they are oblivious of this reality that is to come. It's our job, friends, to wake them up with God's help. And it's our job to point them to the beam of light that cuts straight through Genesis chapter 6 in verse 8. That God is a God of favour and a God of grace. And that favour and that grace finds its ultimate climax in Christ. And that is where we need to point people. In all that we do, in all that we say with God's help, because we're still broken, I still mess up, you still mess up daily. But by God's grace, with his spirit in your hearts, will you go and shine for him in this dark world. That people will come to trust him and live for him as well. We're going to leave it there because we're going to pick up more with the grace and the favour of God next week in part two. But let me pray for us that these things would be ever so real to us this morning.